First uh, Corinthians in chapter 15 and verse 50. As you find that, let's again pray. Father, this is your word and you say it's alive. And so I pray that um, you would breathe it, Holy Spirit, into us. And that we would hear it and believe it. For those who trust you, Jesus, I pray that this word is a profound and deep assurance and confirmation. Uh, a word that enables us to continue on to persevere in the faith. To abound in the work that you've called us to do. And for those who have yet to believe, you may hear this word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would in them plant it so that life grows in them. They may hear this word and believe even unto salvation. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First Corinthians, please. And Chapter 15 and verse 50. This is the word of the Lord. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body put on the immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and mortal, the immortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore... My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And then together we say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. I have a question I want to ask this morning and ponder uh, with you. It's a question uh, that we should always ask, a question that should really be on our minds uh, all, all the time. Uh, we've asked it before. I trust we should indeed ask it again. But the question is this. How do we live when death seems always around us? How do we live when death seems always around us. I know what you're thinking. Uh, happy Easter to you too, Bill. <laughs> but that's the question. Uh, obviously, in the days in which we never can't stop thinking about death, it's on the news all the time. People are talking about it. We don't necessarily see it in our particular venue, though it's touched us. But it's around the world. People are dying. People are talking about it. We're working so that we don't die. Um, we know we live in a culture uh, of death avoiders. Uh, we, we can't avoid it. Each one of us will experience it. But we don't like to talk about it. Now, we see it on TV and the news, and, and it's in, 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 in film. 
and on video games and all of that. But that seems other. That seems outside of us. That seems a part of us. Uh, we don't really like to engage death much. We don't like to talk about it uh, really very much uh, at all. Um, it's almost like if we don't talk about it, uh, it won't hit us. <laughs> And that's not a bad thing because we're living life and we should concentrate our attention really on how do we live. And, and that's a good thing. And, and we're doing that even now. How do we, how do we really live? Our, we're living a bit differently now. We're incessantly washing our hands. We're social distancing. We're, uh, staying a, away from, uh, one another and, and so forth. We're wearing masks. Um, we're not touching our faces. You know, it's right there. I mean, I want to so badly. Uh, we, and I probably will before this is over. So, um, uh, we're not shopping much, which by the way is part of my dream life. Uh, we're not shopping much. We're not going out much. When we do, we, we, everything we buy goes through a decontamination process and uh, before we bring it into the house and put it with the rest of our things and all of that. We're, we're living in a way quite differently, but are concentrating on life so that Death won't come knocking. The apostle who wrote this particular chapter was acquainted with death. It was around him in his own life, uh, in his travels, uh, in the persecution that he experienced. He knew near death. Many occasions and through many forms. So this is not a theoretical question even for the apostle. But how do we live with death around us so very much. Now, much could be said. In fact, as I mentioned earlier in the sort of welcome this morning, I've appreciated very much uh, many of you uh, sending me, very many of you sending me uh, passages of Scripture that are your go-to passages that you meditate upon, that you think about. Uh, so I could use from literally the hundreds of those passages and verses that you sent to me. But what I want this morning, if God will help me, is to commend verse 58 to us. Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, verse 58. And and I would ask you, you might want to uh, sometime this week write it on a card or or if you're this kind of person to take a a marker and and, uh, write it on your mirror. Uh, So when you get up in the morning, it's the verse that you see. In my house, we always call that mirror Christianity. But, uh, or memorize it. But keep it with you um, to help you always, but particularly in these days. The apostle writes, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. I could simply truncate the question and say, how do we live? And we live like this. How do we live when death seems always around us? We live like this. This is how we're to live. Uh, he says, that we're to be, how's he put it, steadfast, immovable. Steadfast, immovable, steady. Don't let anything really rock your boat, if you will. We're to be immovable, not to be, to be moved. We're to uh, abound always, that is increasingly more and more, in the work of the Lord. How do we understand this steadfast, immovable? Well, turn quickly to Colossians and uh, chapter one and verse uh, twenty-three. Colossians chapter one, verse twenty-three. I think there's some help here for us. 
Paul's writing about uh, living out the faith and what it really means. In verse 23, he says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting. Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. In other words, when we live steadfast and immovable, it means we're not shifting from our hope. That is our hope in Christ. Nothing else comes in to take the very place of of Christ in our lives. And if um, you're really good, turn back to Jeremiah and chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. I obviously didn't trust myself. I put a little note in there. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse Five, and then also I want to get to what comes in verse seven because of the contrast. So Jeremiah, uh, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and an uninhabited salt land. But then he goes on to say, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it doesn't cease to bear fruit. So so it... Paul's referring to here in being steadfast, being immovable, being like that tree that's got deep roots, that's really planted. As Jesus would put it, like that man who built his house upon the rock and not upon the sand. If you build it on the sand and the storm comes, we know what happens. But if you build it on the rock and the storm comes, then it's steadfast, if you will. It's immovable. I remember as a kid, uh, we used to sing a song in vacation Bible school. I had to look up the words. Uh, I thought I remembered them, and I, I did mostly. But uh, this song is entitled, I Shall Not Be Moved. It's an old spiritual. Um, Just like the tree that's planted by the waters, I shall not be moved. It begins, glory, hallelujah, I shall not be moved. Anchored in Jehovah, I shall not be moved. In his love abiding, I shall not be moved. In his, and in him confiding, I shall not be moved. Uh, though all hell assail me, I shall not be moved. Jesus will not fail me, I shall not be moved. Though the tempest rages, I shall not be moved. On the rock of ages, I shall not be moved. Just like the tree that's planted by the water, I shall not be moved. That's what Paul's saying. It's how we to live our lives steadfast, immovable. Steadfast in the hope, immovable from the hope, uh, that's in Jesus. We're to live always like that. And that is to say that circumstances shouldn't sw- shift our allegiances. It's easy for that to happen. When the difficulties come, we find our hope elsewhere. For whatever reason, it's like we, we cease hoping in Christ. Paul says, don't do that. When circumstances change, continue to hope in Christ. We're seeing it even in the days in which we live. I trust, I hope not among us, but we know that alcohol abuse, substance abuse is actually, from what we read, increasing at the moment. Pornography use, increasing at the moment. So people are finding their hope elsewhere 
outside of Christ, I trust those perhaps who never had. But it's easy for us also to find our hope in being more in control. We think, oh, I can control this situation. I can really do this. And, and, and then we put all that pressure upon ourselves. Did I wash my hands enough? Was I far enough away? Uh, is the mask on tightly? Have I touched it after I put it on? Did I touch anything after I got back into the house? Did I do this? Did I do that? I need to be in control of every situation. Oh no, something broke in the house. I, the plumber has to come in. Now what? What are we going to do now? Someone's in our house. We were in control a minute ago. Now we're not in control anymore. And, and we, 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 we lose hope, you see. Oh, we, we look to our government and we, we say, well, you should be fixing this in some way. And they probably should be at work with this. And, or, or the medical community. And yes, they, they should be at work here. But we, we shift our hope. We say, if, if, if they can't fix it, then we're doomed. And, 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 and the, the apostle says, no, 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 no. Be steadfast. Immovable. Your hope is in Christ. Continue there like the tree planted by the water. Don't be moved, you see. Don't be moved at all. And then he says, you should always be abounding in the work of the Lord. In other words, if we're, if we're stayed, if we're steady, if we're stuck in a good way, in Christ, remember one of my Sunday school teachers used to say to the children, they should say, you should have Jesus in your heart and glue on your feet, <laughs> which meant that we were to be stuck in him in a good way. But even though that's true, uh, we're always abounding in the work of the Lord. Hoping in Christ frees us, therefore, you see, to, to more and more labor, exert energy in the things of God in the work uh, of the Lord. You see, what is that work of, of the Lord? You know, what, what does it mean? Well, uh, you notice that we find, again, if we could run back to Colossians, this time chapter 3 and uh, verse 17, the apostle writes, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we're to do everything in the name of the Lord. And that's the work of the Lord, everything that we do in his name, you see. Or Paul has previously said to the church in Corinth, we find it back in chapter 10, verse 31. He says, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever we're doing, in that sense is the work of the Lord. We're doing it all to his glory. And we could say that we shouldn't do anything that's not in his name. We shouldn't do anything that's not to his glory. So whatever it is that we're doing, then that's, that's the work of the Lord, you see. But, but perhaps there's something we can get at a bit more uh, specific, uh, let's say. Uh, turn to Philippians and chapter 1. In verse 9. Here the apostle is praying, and he's using this word abound, which means more and more, which means increasing, which means overflowing. That's the work of the Lord in which we're involved, at least the way in which we're involved in it. Philippians 1, verse 9. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, 
so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want to just hear the apostles saying, what's your love to abound more and more, you see? Because all our work ultimately in the Lord and the work of the Lord is this work of love, love to him and love to others. Um, that's true in the context of our family life, the work of the Lord there. We love our spouses, we love our children, we love our parents, you see. Um, in the context of church life, we love God and we love each other in the context of how we're living that out, the work of the Lord. Uh, even in our, our, our work life, our occupations, as we call them, um, uh, whatever it is that you're doing, it's to be out of love for God and out of love for neighbor. And, and hopefully, uh, we know enough as believers and know our calling into our particular jobs to know that that's what God desires for us, that through them, no matter how obvious or not it is, that we're actually loving him and loving our neighbor, blessing others in the midst of the work that God calls us to do. This is the way that God meets needs of people through the work that we do. And so that's the work of the Lord also. But it's this really outpouring of love. In First Thessalonians, in chapter 3, and uh, verse 12, uh, the apostle writes, well, let me begin with verse 11 because it's a wonderful benediction. He says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then then chapter 4, then next verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. This, this idea of living in such a way as to please God. And then verse 9, he says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you're doing uh, to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. You see, he's calling us, the work of the Lord really, is, is calling us to love, to really love each other and, and abound in that work and, and wherever that love leads us. Abound in that, that work, you see. So if I could put it like this, I would say that we're to be steadfast and immovable in our hope in Christ, abounding in the work of the Lord, all things that are in his name, all things to his glory, in love to him and in love to others. But notice this he goes on to say, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He says there's something that we know, and what we know that when we're about this life of glorifying God, of living in his name, of loving, when we're about this work, he says that we know that this work is not in vain. It's a funny way to say it, not in vain. It's like a double negative, right? Because vain means futile, meaningless, purposeless, hopeless, unrewarding, all of that. He says, know that it's not all those bad things, all those negative things. He could simply say, know 
that this work in the Lord has great purpose, is of great value, has great meaning, even when death abounds around us. Because sometimes we think, well, when there's death, why do I do anything at all? If we're just going to die, why not eat, drink, and be merry? I mean, why not? Why are we worried about loving anybody? Why are we worried about, about sacrificing for everyone, anyone? Why are we worried about serving anyone? Why are we worried about putting ourselves out, if you will, uh, when we're just going to die anyway? And he says, no, 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 you don't. Well, he says this. You actually do understand. You know this. As a believer in Jesus, you know this. You know you're to be steadfast, immovable. In your hope. And you know when that's your hope. You'll abound in love. And you know. If Christ is your hope. When you abound in love. It will be of great value. Always. Now how do we know this? Ah. Paul begins verse 58. With the word therefore. He says there's a reason. And this is how we're to live. There's a reason for this hope, and and there's a reason for what we know to be true then that enables us to be steadfast and movable and abounding in the work of the Lord. And so what came before it is the foundation, if you will, the ground of his admonition to us as to how we're to live. And what was that? Well, this whole chapter 15 deals with resurrection. Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, and ours as well. In fact, it seems to be that they were concerned about the resurrection of human beings. And so uh, Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus because the two are related in his mind and in truth. Because if Jesus hasn't been raised, then we won't either. And if there is no resurrection, then Jesus wasn't raised either. And so he begins, as we laid out in those first 11 verses, as we read earlier, that Paul says that this resurrection of Jesus is a fact. It actually did happen. He said, I received it. That is, I did some research and I found out. I checked with eyewitnesses. I received it and passed it along to you. And and he talks about it. And he says, this is what's of first importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised. Uh, in accordance with the scriptures. And then, and then he appeared. He appeared. So it didn't happen in a corner. He appeared. He appeared himself to Peter. And then to the twelve. And then he says, he appeared to more than 500 at one time. Many of whom, he says, not too long afterwards, some decades. Many of whom are still alive. The sense being that he appeared to 500. Many of them are alive. You can ask them. You can ask them. And then he appeared to James and apostles. And then even Paul himself, as you remember, on the road to Damascus, saw the Lord Jesus. And so he said, therefore, he's appeared uh, also uh, to me. He's saying this actually, Paul says, this actually happened. Uh, It's really true. So that's the ground, you see of how we're to live. If we're to be steadfast and immovable in hope, it's only because Jesus has risen from the dead. 
If we're to abound in the work of the Lord, it's only because Jesus has risen from the dead. And if we're to know that our work is valuable, even in the midst of death, it's only because Jesus has risen from the dead. That's his, that's his point. And you see, very often at Easter time, unbelievers or those who don't believe the gospel of Jesus talk about uh, this resurrection as something that was tacked on to the life of Jesus, tacked on to, to kind of... Um, be a good inspirational story. What a great ending, you see. Uh, and, 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 and we could live by this fable, if you will, by this, by this story. Because stories sometimes do inspire us, even if they're not true. We, they can, we can be inspired by them. They can teach us good lessons. And so the idea is that we can tack on this resurrection, uh, to this life of this man, Jesus, who was killed. Uh, then we can, we can say, look, good triumphs over evil or, or justice over tyranny. And you know, on good days, those kinds of stories can help us. But when real difficulties are faced, we want to know facts. We want to know what's real. We want to know what's really true, what really happened. So Paul says, if you're going to live as you're to live, steadfast, immovable, abounding in work, the work of the Lord, and to know that it's really of great value, and you really have to know this. So I'm going to cement it down for you. And then he goes on to say, beginning in verse 12, that this really must be true. And if it's not true, then, then we haven't got anything at all. Uh, in verse 14, he says, and if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain. In other words, he's saying, listen, I don't have the job. I don't have anything to do. There's nothing for me to say. If Christ hasn't been raised, then, then why am I even preaching? My, 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 my preaching's in vain. And your faith is in vain because there's nothing really to believe. It's futile to believe. He says, then we've been found to be misrepresenting God because we're saying God raised him from the dead. And if he didn't, then we're, we're actually misrepresenting God. In verse 17, he says, if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. In other words, if Christ hasn't been raised, then his death accomplished nothing. Because it's said that he was given up for our sins, but if he isn't raised, then you're still in them, because he still hasn't paid for them. There still hasn't conquered sin and death. And then he said, all those who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ, well, they, they have no hope, they just perished. And he said, listen, if, if, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we're to be, we're to be pitied. So he cements and he says, listen, this has to be true. If it isn't true, we have nothing. But he says, it really is true. We've seen him. And the eyewitnesses have given reports that he was raised from the dead. So I just want to make two points from this passage and, and, and a bit beyond. But, but just a couple of points to get us back to verse 58. Two things that will help us uh, to be steadfast and movable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that such work is valuable. First point is this. That in the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus, something was actually accomplished. Something was actually done. Uh, that he died for sins, and thus he conquered uh, sin uh, and death. I take that from beginning verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. So if Christ has been raised, then your faith 
is meaningful, is valuable, is real, and 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 we're no longer uh, in our sins. We're freed from them. That He conquered uh, sin uh, and death. Uh, we see that uh, explicitly in in Romans and chapter four and verse twenty five. Romans chapter four and verse twenty five speaks of our Lord Jesus. Uh, it says, "Who Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised." For our justification. He was given up because of our sins, but he was raised so that we could be declared forgiven our sins and righteous in the sight of God. That is reconciled with God to have peace uh, with him. I mean, why is there death anyway? It wasn't in the original creation, if you will, for human beings. It wasn't like God created Adam and Eve and had built within them kind of a planned obsolescence. Like, they'll only last so long. I'll get some more later. No, he didn't. He created them to live. Death only came to them when they sinned. See, God created the world in such a way that it was to reflect him, that it was to glorify him, everything, particularly human beings. And and they were to glorify him, Adam and Eve, and, and he would come after him to after them to glorify him by love, by loving him, and by loving others to reflect God, who in Himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is love, and we're to reflect that love. So they were to love God and to love. Each other, that's the way the world was built. And then they didn't. They didn't love as they ought to have loved. They didn't love God because they didn't obey him. They didn't honor him as God and and obey him. They turned and went their own way. Actually, they followed the evil one. They said, God's word isn't true. The word of the evil one is. We'll take that word and we'll live upon that. And that brought death, you see. And they didn't love each other. Because if they'd really loved each other, they they would have never let each other Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree that God had forbidden them to eat. And you see, when that happened, death came. No longer life. And thus death comes, you see, because of sin and comes as a judgment because of sin. Yes, we've broken the law of God. We've broken the way of God. And the way of God is life. The penalty is death to take away life. It's a just, righteous judgment against us. There was physical death, of course, that came to the race uh, for them and for each of us. The clock would be ticking. And spiritual death as well, dead, as Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and our trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. Represented with this physical death. So we find a commentary from the Romans chapter 4 verse 25 verse that he was raised for a justification at the very end of this first Corinthians passage. Notice in the middle of verse um, 54 at the end of it, it says death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? You see, when it talks about the sting of death, it's not sting like a sunburn stings, but a sting like a poisonous insect would sting. That which brings death. 
And so, because of Christ, Paul is able to quote Old Testament passages, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? Like, it's not here anymore. And, and he explains by verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. See, the, the sting of death is sin. Sin is that which kills. Sin is that which brings death, you see. So the poisonous sting is death, I'm sorry, is sin that brings to us this judgment, this death. And the power of sin is the law. See, the law of God, it it comes and it tells us how we're to live. And thus, it's a mirror to us. And, And if we don't live that way, then it reveals it to us. And thus then, it gives power to sin. Power to sin to condemn us. How is it in the prayer book? We've left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. Doesn't that describe your life? Well, not everywhere and always, but doesn't that describe your life? Especially when we put it like this. But we're to love one another as we love ourselves. Now, that isn't a command to love ourselves. That's simply saying to, to love other people as if they were you. That their needs are your needs. And we look at that and we say, that's, that's impossible. I could never do that. I can never. And you're right. We're to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To honor him, to follow him, to do that which pleases him. And we go, I've done that. And thus, you see, that's the law. That's the power that brings the sin to condemn and thus sting us. But here's the point. When Jesus died, he didn't die for his sins, but he died for ours. He was given up for us. So he took upon himself, the Father imputed to him, credited to him, put upon him our guilt, the guilt of our sin. So that when he died, he wasn't dying for his sins, but for ours. So once such sins were paid for, once our sins were paid for, once the penalty of death had been taken upon Jesus and he paid for the sins of sinners, then he was free to go because he had no sin in himself. And so the resurrection of Jesus is the, is the shout to us to say, I accepted the sacrifice of my son so that sins are now forgiven. Trust in what he did. Your sins are forgiven in him. Believe. Ah, you see, that's it. That's why he had to be raised. If he wasn't raised, A, we wouldn't have known what really happened. And B, if he wasn't raised, it must mean that he was still paying for sins. That his death was still paying for sins. And that would be no hope to us at all. Uh, Paul speaks of this very thing in Romans and in chapter 8 and verse 3. He says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Uh, It's a lot to say. But God is saying here uh, to us that uh, the law, weakened by our flesh, couldn't save us. We kept sinning. It just kept condemning us, the law did. But by sending his son in our likeness, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is, Jesus took our guilt upon him. In order that, the righteous requirement of the law, that is to condemn sin, might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So that verse 1 in chapter 8 could be true. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're freed from it, you see. We're freed from it. We just sang this great um, poetic line, Death in vain forbids him rise. Ponder that. Death couldn't keep him. Tried. But in vain, you see, forbids him to rise. I just got this picture in my mind of death going like this to Jesus. Don't you rise. But he did. Couldn't keep him. That's the first point. That Jesus accomplished sin and death. Second point will be quicker. I know you're thinking about brunch. Ah, the timer's going off on your stove. Just turn it off. We'll be done in a few minutes. Second point, though, is, is the second half, really, of that poetic expression. Uh, death in vain forbids him rise, but Christ opened paradise. I mean, it's as if when Jesus rose, there was a big hole in heaven and paradise was opened. Open for those who would believe in Jesus. And we know the ultimate would go and be with him, you know, when we die. And we know ultimately comes in his return and, and fulfills all of it. But, but even now, it's as if the future through the resurrection of Jesus penetrates, opened into the present. At the age to come, resurrection life has now come into the age that is, into the present age. And it's here with us. The kingdom of God is here. Uh, Paul would put it like this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He's the first fruit, you see. And everybody knows what that is. It's it's the beginning of the harvest. It's just when it's... It's it's the very first grain. It's the very first uh, fruit of the vine, if you will. And, And the first fruit says, this isn't it. I mean, it's it. But there's more to come. This isn't all of it. There's more to come. And so when Christ has risen, you see, we know that something's happened. Sin and death has been conquered. Something else has happened. And the future has penetrated the present. And resurrection resurrection life has come to us. But we know it's not here in its fullness. We know it won't be here in its fullness until Jesus returns. And that's a very helpful thing for us to really know that, as he goes on to say in verse 21, for as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. And so all who believe in Jesus are made alive, you see. Again, if we could, Romans in chapter 6 this time. In verse 5, for if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has sinned has died, uh, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died once to sin, uh, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is who we are now. It's the beginning of it. The day will come when the new body comes and the new earth and all of that. But, but for now, it's begun. We say the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It's, it's here, not in its fullness, but it's, it's here. It's here. Okay, now take those two pieces. That through the death of Christ, sin and death has been conquered. And we know that by his resurrection. And by his resurrection, we know that the future has penetrated the present and that we have life in him. So, Paul says, be steadfast and immovable, abounding always in the work of the Lord, knowing that such work is never in vain. How do we understand that? First, this. So easy when times get difficult. It's so easy for our hope to vanish from Christ and be put in other things or become, become hopeless. And one of the things that can happen to us in the midst of all of this is for us to have thoughts like this. Who in the world do I think I am that God would actually hear my prayers? It doesn't seem like he does. Who am I to think that he really does care for me? I mean, really. I mean, why should God care for me? And then you see, there are others who come uh, accusations from the evil one, accusations from the world. Who do you think you are? Well, look at what's happening. How can there really be a God who cares for us if this kind of thing is happening to us? More particularly, how could there be a God when these sorts of things are happening to you and you say you believe in him? And our hope gets shaky at that point. Well, then you see, we must realize what was accomplished really on the cross. I'm not much of a shopper, but I must confess, I really do like shopping at Sam's. When Karen and I go there, I call it guy shopping. Feels like you're in a warehouse. Feels great. There's so much stuff. There's samples. Ah. In fact, when the kids were little, we would take them there, and I would get lawn chairs from one section, put them in front of the big TVs, go get samples. We called it dinner and a movie. Uh, and Karen would shop. And so... Uh, I, I really like it, but, but I have one insecurity always after we shopped at Sam's. There's somebody at the door to check out all the things you bought. Now, I'm not a thief, I, so I'm not worried about that. I'm just worried maybe something didn't get accounted for and that they'll find it and I'll look like a thief uh, and uh, as, I'm, as I'm leaving the store. What saves me is the receipt. Because the receipt says, everything's been paid for. Forgive the silliness, I suppose. But the resurrection of Jesus is our receipt. 
There's always that anxiety. Maybe there's something that didn't get paid for. Maybe there's still some reason for him to condemn me. I mean, I, I can I can list reasons. And then I look at the receipt. And the receipt lists every single one. And even ones I haven't even thought about. Even ones I haven't yet done. And just like the checker at Sam's takes that little marker and goes, it's like, through the receipt, it's all been paid. And then I can be steadfast and immovable. Another thing that come upon us, you see, during this time, is that we know that the world in which we live isn't the way it ought to be. And we think, well, Christ has come, so shouldn't it be more like what's to come than it actually is like what's to come? And we have aberrations even in the Christian faith. We have the health and wealth and prosperity people who want us to think that it's, 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 it's all what is to come. And we're not there, though we know we've been blessed by God. We trust him to help us. But you see, then we go back and we realize, wait a minute. What Jesus did at this point in time is the first fruits. He's the first fruit. He's the beginning of it. We don't have to be naive. We don't have to live by cliché. We don't have to say things like, well, you know, there's a silver lining in every cloud. We don't have to see what doesn't kill you, makes you stronger. No, that's all true, by the way. But only if Christ is really risen. And we don't live as those who are naive. We, we know that death still is physically. We know still we'll go through it. We know the brokenness of the world still. We, we know the sin that exists and abounds in the world. We know even in our own lives. We're not naive about that. But we don't have to be shaken either when difficulties come. We know they will. Our hope still is in Christ. And we're assured because he's been resurrected. The future has entered. The kingdom has been inaugurated. And so now we trust and we live that out. We trust we'll see it in due time, even in our own death and even when he comes. Finally this, that we can know that Every work that we do, every work of love, everything that we do in the name of Christ will be of great value. Why? Well, not because we always see it. Uh, we always see the value of it. But we can trust. Why? Because we know he's ruling and reigning. We know that he's the very one who's in glory. You know this passage in, in Hebrews and, and chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us lay aside every weight and, and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the risen Jesus. If he's dead, no reason to look to him. The risen Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what's in the middle of 
the expression endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What's in the middle of that is he was raised. He went to the cross. Now he's ascended, ruling and reigning because he was raised. And because he was raised, we know he's ruling and reigning. What's he ruling and reigning over? Everything that he did to make sure that it all comes to fruition. And he said, work through us even in the world in which we live to do that which is good. To abound in his work, the work of love, you see. And so we know, as he rules and reigns over it, that it is all for good, nothing in vain. One illustration from the scripture in Acts chapter 18, the apostle Paul himself was in Corinth. And it seems as if he was discouraged and even afraid. And so the Lord came to him. You can only imagine he was discouraged because uh, persecution was coming his way. Um, People were getting thrown in prison because of his preaching and he was up for it as well. And verse 9 of of, uh, Acts 18, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Don't be afraid. So he must have been. Don't be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. What's the point? The point is that Paul was at a moment thinking, is there anybody else who's ever going to believe in Jesus here? Is my work really in vain? Am I doing this for nothing? I'm, I'm, I'm causing people to get thrown into prison by what I'm preaching, and I'm going to get thrown into prison by what I'm preaching. Is this really worth it, or is this just vanity? And the Lord shows up and said, oh, let me give you some, some little nugget of truth that I can see and you can't. I've got many in the city. Keep on. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like nothing's coming of what I'm doing? I'm loving my children. I'm loving my spouse. I'm, I'm trying to, to, to help people. I'm, 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 I'm working at my job in such a way that's, that's the best that I can do. And I really do have a sense that I'm, I'm loving people through it. And, and yet, doesn't, it just doesn't seem like anything's being accomplished at all. Where's your help? Is it in Christ? If it's in Christ and you're trusting that he's ruling and reigning over all that you're doing and that he'll make it of great value. And that's only true if he's ruling and reigning. And that's only true if he's risen. And he's only risen if he's paid for sins and accomplished the work that he'd come to do. Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we uh, give you thanks uh, that on this day we can really say that Christ is risen. We can rest in the truth of the gospel, sins forgiven, justified, adopted. This work of sanctification by the Holy Spirit in us, the future glory that we anticipate. We know that the kingdom has come in Jesus, that he rules and reigns even now. Thus we know that we needn't fear. We can rest in your wisdom, your power, your love. Father, even apart from the situation caused by the coronavirus, life happens to us. So we pray that you would be with those who are grieving. I think of the Mumford family as they grieve for Mac. 
pray for Brenda Brown and her family as she grieves the loss of her sister. People have difficulties even apart from the virus. I pray for um, Joel Tigreen as he battles cancer and for Janelle Slater and uh, for Joel Foster. Father, be with them. Many have financial issues still and there's poor among us. For those who experience emotional difficulties coping with life, the list of hardships is a long one, Father. So be with those who suffer. And concerning the days in which we live, we continue to lift up those who are on the front line, the front lines these days, the healthcare workers of whom the list is long in our congregation. We give thanks for those who have sat in the hospital parking lot and prayed for those there and throughout the city caring for the sick. Pray for those who are in other places, uh, providing services that are essential for us and to expose themselves to sickness perhaps more than others. And I'm reminded of our Lord who came to serve and not be served. So we pray that like him, we may all find ourselves serving others. Father, please assure us that we know that our work in the Lord is never in vain, but Oh, is valuable and because of you, even if it's rejected in the life now and even if we die doing it. Father, we pray as many did during our time of prayer on Friday that you would heal our land and our world of this virus, that you would strengthen those who work for a cure, that they would be encouraged and strengthened and given wisdom by your providence, lead them to that which would help many. Uh, Father, this uh, threat of sickness uh, from the virus complicates our lives, so we pray that you would take us to the empty tomb and enable us to grasp the profound blessing that is ours because Christ is risen. May we know the new life that is ours in him. May we know that you lead us. May we follow you into paths of righteousness. And even though we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, cause us to fear no evil, knowing that you are with us. May we be comforted by your word that teaches us and corrects us, even disciplines us. And by your gracious hand and mighty hand rescues us. Refresh us, God, in these days by the presence of your spirit within us and by your word that we meditate upon that we may be filled with joy, knowing that because we belong to you, that goodness and mercy flood us every day and all the days of our lives. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.